Father, we thank you for this day which you have made. You've blessed us, Father. You have heard and answered our prayers. You're the God who is here, the God who walks with us every step of the way. And we're so thankful, Lord, that in a world in which so many people are influenced by spirits, that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who is almighty and all kind and all merciful and all loving. And Lord, I pray that our lives will just reflect the glory of God in all that we do, even in our fellowship here this morning, that Christ will be seen in us and in the service which is taking place now and in the Sunday school classes all over this building. We ask that you will be very present. And Lord, direct our thinking this morning Teach us from your word and pray that as we leave here today, we will do so with new uh, energy, with new enthusiasm, with uh, a sense of hope, knowing that the God of all might and miracle is at work even in this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the 50th chapter of Genesis, I would like to begin this morning by reading verses 4 through 9 in the 50th chapter of Genesis. And when the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all, up all the, uh, the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph, and his brothers, and his father's household. They left only their little ones, and their flocks, and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. Really, this is an amazing picture when, when you think about this. You think about the fact that uh, we're, we're talking about, you know, kind of a nomadic family, uh, shepherds, uh, kind of a nobody family in, in the sense of their tradition up till now. And yet, as you read this and, and, and you read about this great procession, it really is an amazing thing. Joseph is in the land of Goshen where his father has died. And if you remember, the land of Goshen is, is to the north, a little bit to the east from Memphis, which was the capital of Egypt at that time. Memphis was located very close to where modern Cairo uh, is today. And he, he sent a message, a request, back, an official message, of course, back to Pharaoh in Memphis, asking permission to take his father's body up to Canaan. Now, his father's body had been there for, of course, many weeks now, because as we noted last week, as it explains in the first verses of this chapter, that Joseph put his father's body through the process of uh, mummification or embalming. That was the short process, but enough to prepare the body so it would be sustained for the days and weeks that would be involved in making the trip up to Hebron. What he is actually asking for here is not just permission to go, but he's actually requesting for a full honors burial procession for his father. 
to escort his father's body these 200 or so miles from Goshen up to Hebron. Now, remembering that Joseph is the prime minister of the land. He is the chief executive officer, if you will, of the land. Pharaoh has ultimate authority. And if Pharaoh so chose, he could countermand any order that Joseph gave. But as we noted earlier on, uh, Joseph was, was given the authority to do whatever he saw fit to do. And we have no record of Pharaoh ever countermanding an order of Joseph. But Joseph's going to be out of the country now for six weeks at least. And so it was very important to get permission of Pharaoh because the chief executive officer can't just disappear for six weeks and leave the country with nobody to run it. Uh, obviously, Pharaoh would have to assume authority, uh, the actual everyday running authority of the government while Joseph was gone. So he had to get that permission from Pharaoh that Pharaoh understood uh, what the implication would be of that. And of course, he explained to Pharaoh the reason he was going. His father made him promise that he would take his body up and bury it in the family tomb at Hebron. And, and Pharaoh, of course, really understood this. We, we realize, I think, if you've ever looked much at, at Egyptian history, the great emphasis in Egypt on the death, on death and the dead and, and the afterlife. Egypt, of, of almost all societies, has had one of the greatest focuses in its pre-Islamic days, at least, on the afterlife. It just seems to permeate much of Egyptian thought. And, of course, I suppose that seems to be true, at least in part, because most of what exists today of record of that ancient culture was written either by the priests or is the tomb art, which uh, exists in so many of the tombs there in Egypt and would, of course, by necessity, focus on the afterlife. But Pharaoh was very sympathetic to Joseph's request, not only because he cared deeply for Pharaoh and, and was felt deeply in, uh, for, for Joseph, that Pharaoh cared deeply for Joseph and felt deeply indebted to him, but also because the Egyptians had this great emphasis on the afterlife. I mean, who in all history built tombs like the Egyptians? <laughs> I mean, Egypt is just full of tombs. In fact, there are whole necropolises. The city would usually be built on one side of the Nile, and then on the other side of the Nile, usually on the west side of, this, of the Nile, they would put the necropolis for the city, which we would call the graveyard. Only in, in the case of the Egyptians, their graveyard wasn't normally a bunch of holes in the ground and, and with a little tombstone on top, but they were structures built on top of the ground. Tombs, literally, built on top of the ground, out of stone, which uh, would create a whole city of these stone buildings with paved walkways in between it all. And, of course, today, because of the great crowded condition that exists in Egypt, those tomb cities are inhabited by Egyptians. The poor live in those cities. They live in the tombs. And it's, uh, you know, it's... <laughs> It doesn't really bother the Islamic people, I guess, but it sure would have bothered the ancient Egyptians. The, the thought of it would have been impossible to have dealt with. The burial of Jacob was to be a great state affair. I mean, Joseph is not just sneaking away with his father's body and going over there and plunking in it in the family tomb. This is going to be a great state affair. And, and there are three reasons for this. First, Jacob was an honored prince. He was the father of Joseph. 
and, and he was a man of great longevity. And we already noted the fact how, how astonished Pharaoh was at the great age of Jacob. And, and so he was honored in his, in his own person. But secondly, this is going to be a great state occasion because it's Joseph's father. And nobody in all of Egypt other than Pharaoh was as highly honored as was Joseph. Therefore, there was great interest and concern in making this a state affair on behalf of the savior of Egypt, the hero of the land, if you will. I mean, we're talking about maybe probably fewer than five years at the most after the great famine had already swept Egypt for seven years. I mean, so they hadn't forgotten this disaster, that near, this near disaster that had come upon the land and how Joseph had actually saved them from disaster at that point. So uh, he is uh, still a very uh, great hero to the people. And then third reason is the fact that the Egyptians took burial very seriously. And they loved the pomp and the pageantry that went along with funerals. So Joseph organized this procession uh, that was to go from the land of Goshen up to Hebron. And the procession included, the scripture tells us what the procession included. We're told that it, it included all of his brothers and their families, his father's household, and the households of all of these members of the family. The only persons who didn't go along were the small children, and enough servants were left behind to care for the small children and to watch over the flocks. So there was just a kind of a, a skeleton force left behind to kind of keep order in, in the family possessions where all the rest of them, all the adults, everybody who would be at least bar mitzvah age and older, would all be going on this journey. And then we're also told that Egyptians went on this journey. We're told that the principal state officials, the, the scripture says the elders of Egypt, what that means is the provincial governors Virtually the whole upper echelon of the Egyptian government went along, except Pharaoh, and obviously certain members of his uh, royal household. But all these high-ranking uh, Egyptian officials also went on this journey to bury Jacob. Now, why did they go? Well, first of all, of course, they probably went because uh, Pharaoh maybe insisted that they go to show Pharaoh's concern about this situation. But I think more than that, they went because maybe they had a true respect for Joseph himself, or certainly they felt that they would not do their position any honor or their chances of future advancement any good if they in some way offended Joseph. Because remembering, Joseph is the second most powerful man in the land. He is the authority over all these provincial governors. And so if they don't go... They may be cutting their own necks as far as the future. That may be the way they perceived it, uh, even though probably Joseph wouldn't have done such a thing. So here we have this great procession. It was a grand affair. I mean, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people making this journey out across the, the desert up towards Hebron, riding men and women, riding on, I think, richly draped camels and horses and in, in numerous wagons. There was a great wagon train that went along here, certainly, because, first of all, the body had to be carried in a wagon. But think about it for a minute. 
you and I go on a journey. Let's say we decide we're going to go to St. Louis. And we think, okay, it'll take us X number of days off to make this many motel stops and we'll be able to eat in this restaurant, that restaurant, or stop in a store and pick up a little bit of food along the way. Uh, no, not with this procession to Hebron. There's no place to stop along the way. So they had to take all of their supplies with them. They had to take all the food and everything else they were going to be needing along with them as they went. And when you've got hundreds of people, maybe a thousand or more people traveling, it's going to take a lot of food and a lot of other supplies. And we're not talking about people who are used to just tossing a bedroll on the ground and shacking out under the stars. We're talking about royal officials. We're talking about people who live in luxury. And so you can imagine the number of servants and, and all the tents and other things that had to go along with this. So, I mean, we're talking about a great wagon train, certainly, here to uh, support this journey. It's going to be a 500-mile round trip. And this procession probably moved at about a, maybe a fast walking pace because many people would be walking along with the camels and the wagons and, and so forth. We're told in verse 9 of this passage in chapter 50 that there also went up with him both chariots and horsemen. So what we're talking about here is a military escort. A military escort of chariots and cavalry is going along with this procession. Soldiers in, in, with their shields and their spears are riding along in their, their chariots and with their horses as a state honor guard. That was part of their function, was simply to be an honor guard for the burial of this great man and certainly also to provide protection because remembering the world of that day was full of nomadic people and these nomadic people had as one of their side occupations often uh, marauding, raiding. And, you know, you catch a caravan out by itself and it looks like it's loaded with good stuff. Why, shoot, you know, these nomads would make a raid and attack it and be off into the desert before anybody would know about it. So this honor guard goes along with them to make sure that there is no threat to this great procession. To me, it is absolutely fascinating to think that here we have probably the largest and most powerful nation in the world in that day, an absolutely pagan nation. And what is it doing? It's putting on this great show for God's man. Jacob was God's man. Joseph is God's man. And they're putting on this procession and all of this pomp and circumstance in honor of God's man. Who's in charge anyway, huh? Uh, Satan thinks he's got a handle on things, and when we look at the world, we say, well, you know, he's really got the pot stirred up. But God is in charge. God is almighty, God is all-powerful, and God will accomplish his will. He reigns in this world. Satan does not reign. Satan may be the prince of the power of the air, but God's the Lord of the universe. And as we are always reminded, I think, in the first chapters of Job, Satan may come before God, but he has to get God's permission for anything and everything that he does. He does not have the power to do it on his own. God reigns in this world, and God will cause even Satan's servants to honor God's servants, whenever that is God's plan. I think it reminds us 
or should at least, of Proverbs 16.7 where we read, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's ways, when a woman's ways are pleasing to the Lord, God makes even our enemies to be at peace with us. And then, of course, that passage that we're so often uh, referring to uh, in Philippians, where we're told that one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, that's what makes pluralism so hard today. You, you go to a, an organization which is kind of a secular organization, but they start talking about religious things. And, and this whole idea is to be, you know, to be tolerant and liberal because every way leads to the same place. You know, we all are going to get there by whatever road we go. But that's not what Scripture says. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that not Allah, you know, not Buddha, not... Uh, Krishna or any of the other gods and goddesses of the universe invented or real, but Jesus Christ is Lord and he alone reigns. And, and that, of course, is, is what gives us the uh, drive to go on, I think, and the sense that we know what is right and, and we know what is good, but it also causes us to be labeled by the world as bigots because we're intolerant and we can't see the fact that if an Islamic person wants to believe the way of Islam and, and he thinks he's going to get to heaven that way, then we should say that's okay because that probably is true. But we can't accept that. And therefore we must tell them about Christ. Chapter 50, verse 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there, with a, great, with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. And thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field before a burial, for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, I, I don't know if you noted through, as, as we read that passage, but the funeral procession took a very strange route to get to Hebron. Now, the, to go from Goshen to Hebron, you can plot it on a map. It's a fairly straight route. You go across the remaining part of the delta. You go across the area where the Suez Canal is today, and you go across uh, either the central or the northern part of the, uh, the north central or the very coastline of the Sinai Desert. And you go through the Negev, you go up the hill to Hebron. And if you go that route, it's less than 200 miles from where the procession began. But the scripture tells us here that they went to Transjordan. They went beyond the Jordan. The procession stopped at a place in Hebrew, Goren Ha'atad, 
which means the threshing floor of Atad. Now, the word Atad is probably used here as a name. It's, it's probably the name of somebody whose threshing floor it was. The word Atad itself means bramble, you know, thistles. So, so probably somebody had the name of thistle. <laughs> and this threshing floor belonged to him. Now, they've never been able to positively identify this location, but apparently it was north of the Dead Sea, not far from where the Jordan enters the Dead Sea, and east of the Jordan River. Now, the question is, what are in the world are they doing anywhere near the Jordan River? Because to go from Egypt to Hebron, you don't have to go anywhere near the Jordan River. What are they doing over there? I mean, why did they make this circuitous route in order to get to the burial place ultimately? Whenever you see the term beyond the Jordan in Scripture, that almost always refers to Transjordan, or what we today call the country of Jordan. The East Bank, as opposed to the West Bank. So, uh, why? Why are they there? Well, the, to, to go this route would add at least 100 miles to the overall trip. Remember I mentioned to you that it would be a little less than 200 miles to make the trip one way, this way, the trip becomes a 500-mile round trip instead of a 400-mile round trip. So why add an extra 100 miles on? Well, we don't have an answer. The scripture does not say. But it's very possible that it had to do with political conditions that existed at that time, or, or possibly. It's possible that uh, Joseph wanted to go back the route that, by which he was brought into Egypt. Because he would have been brought down the east side, probably. Uh, not necessarily. He might have been brought down the west side. But whatever the case was, that, that might have been a possibility. But it's also a very great possibility that the Egyptians had made treaties with the local chieftains because Egypt had hegemony over this area at that time and had made certain treaties whereby they had promised that they wouldn't bring a military force into this area without specific permission. And so they were circumventing those treaty areas and coming into the other side over there. That's a possibility and seems to be the most probable option here. But whatever the case, that's where they went. And when they arrived at the threshing floor of Atad, the scripture tells us that the Egyptians carried on with great lamentation. They mourned for Jacob. Now why did they do it there? Because Joseph had told them, my brothers and I will go on alone with the body. You will remain here. So they had to make their great lamentation there as they honored the deceased with the typical Egyptian style of lamentation. And Joseph allowed it to take place. Now, it's interesting, this passage tells us that the news traveled very quickly about this procession and about the lamentation going on. I mean, it wasn't every day that a procession of this size and with all the pomp and circumstance involved went parading through the Sinai. And so the word traveled very quickly amongst the Canaanites that this was going on. And so the scripture says they came to Gawk. Whoa, look at those guys down there and they, they came from all around, probably mostly from Jericho, which would have been the closest large city. 
and they came to to watch, you know, starry-eyed. What what are these guys doing here? You know, mourning, and and they're such uh, well-dressed and richly attired people. I mean, what a caravan we're looking at here. They were so impressed that they renamed the spot instead of being Goran Ha'atad. Uh, they, they named it, as the scripture says here, Abel Mizraim, which means the field of mourning or the place of mourning or a, a place of Egyptian mourning. Mizraim refers to Egypt. The, the mourning of the Egyptians. You know, that, that, that was probably something spoken around the campfires in the Canaanite villages for decades after that. Whoa, you, you didn't live to see the great mourning that the Egyptians gave for us one day there north of the, of the Dead Sea. For seven days this morning occurred. And then when the seven days were up, Joseph ordered that he and his brothers would transport the body on to Hebron. Now, Joseph, by going to the place he went, made the task of getting his father's body to Hebron more difficult. Because if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, or if you've ever studied the, the geography of the area, you know that the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. So at the threshing floor where they were, they were probably at least 1,200 feet below sea level. Hebron is over 3,000 feet above sea level. So they had to climb out of this canyon, if you will, 4,000 feet in a 45-mile distance in order to reach Hebron. Now, I think we talked about this way back early, in, uh, but you wouldn't remember. The geography of the area, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea are in what is known geologically as a graben. The word graben is German for grave, and what they mean is a downfaulted area, sort of like Death Valley over there is in a downfaulted area where there's faults on both sides, and when earthquakes occur, that area slips down to a lower level relative to the area around it. And so it's, it's, a, it's a deep canyon that slices through there, and it goes all the way into the Red Sea, and the Red Sea continues that, that same fault line all the way into Ethiopia, and it runs all the way through East Africa to the mouth of the Zambezi River. It's, it's the greatest rift valley on the surface of this planet that's not covered by the sea. And so uh, they're in the deepest part of it here. So they have to make this journey, and out of this downfaulted area to the mountains is not an easy climb. It's pretty steep through there. And even today, you, you notice it when you, when you uh, drive through that particular area. And so they had to make this journey out of the canyon up to Hebron. For Joseph, it was the first time in 30 years, probably more than 30 years, that he had been at Hebron. And certainly it was a bitter, sweet experience for him. It's kind of like coming home, and yet he's coming home to, to bury his beloved father. Well, they carried out the ceremony, whatever was involved, the scripture doesn't tell us, uh, of putting their father in the cave of Machpelah. And as I mentioned to you last week or the week before, today the cave of Machpelah has a very large structure sitting on top of it. A... Um, it's a building which is used for both uh, Arab, uh, Islamic uh, worship and Jewish worship. It was built by Herod the Great, uh, 
back in the time of Christ, actually before Christ was born. He built this big building to commemorate this, this cave where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives are buried. So you, you can't just walk up to the cave of Machpelah. It's, it's underneath this building today. But they then, once they had completed it, I think they probably had to uh, speak to the local Canaanites. Was Ephron still alive? The man? No, probably not, because that was in Abraham's day. But his descendants were alive. And Jacob had lived at Hebron for years and years and years. And so he knew the surrounding Canaanites, and they knew him well. So certainly the brothers had to talk with them and, and allow them to express their grief, as typically nomads will do about the death of this great prince. And uh, then after all of the ceremonies involved there, they went back to the threshing floor of Atad to begin the journey back to Egypt. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. Now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In human relations especially in relations within the church, Christian and Christian. One of the questions we should always ask ourselves is, am I in God's place? In other words, what right do we have to judge one another? The scripture teaches us that we can inspect fruit and, and we can see the fruit, but it is not in our place to stand as if we are God judging one another. The brothers... After all the ceremony is over and after the trip is over and they're back in Goshen, the brothers got to thinking, and maybe while they were on the trip, very probably, they got to thinking, Dad's gone. You know, Dad was one whom, whom Joseph loved dearly and whatever Dad wanted, that's what he'd do. But he's gone now. Our shield is gone. Our intercessor is gone. I think there were a few times when the brothers on the way back thought, I don't think I want to go back to Egypt. But they didn't have any choice. Their, their, their small children were, were in Egypt. Their flocks were in Egypt. Everything they possessed was in Egypt. They had to go back. And yet, there was this fear. They developed a guilty conscience all over again for what they had done 30 years before. Joseph had said to them, and you were, I'm sure you remember the passage well, when, when, they finally, when Joseph finally revealed himself to, to them, he said, I forgive you. I forgive you. God forgives you. I forgive you. Jacob forgave them. They had been forgiven for what they had done. 
And Joseph had proven his forgiveness. He hadn't just said it. He'd proven it by ministering to his brothers and their families for 17 years, the whole time they'd been living in Egypt. He provided for them, gave them the best of the land. They had protection. They had provision. He saw to it that they had all of the grain they needed throughout the drought. But they suddenly felt exposed without the shield of their father. Why? Well, I think the answer is in Revelation 12:10. John is speaking about one of the great visions that he saw, and he said, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And, and, of course, John is looking back over the sweep of history. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And, and you and I, again, know so well the story of, of Job. Satan went up there before God and, he's, and he said, Sure, Job blesses you, but look at the hedge you build around him. Take away that hedge, let me touch him, and he'll curse you to your face. He was accusing Job before God. And, and you and I, as believers, have to know that we are being accused by Satan all the time. He's accusing us before God, and he's accusing us in our own ears. He's saying, you're a dirty rat. How could you possibly be used by God? You know what kind of a person you are. And I think he's the one who spoke in these brothers' ears and revived this fear, brought back to their minds the vivid memory of Joseph saying, please don't do this to me, and how they turned their back and showed no mercy as they sold him into slavery. And I think Satan just made this a vivid scene before their eyes. And suddenly they were smitten by their guilt again, even though it was gone. Joseph had forgiven them. Jacob had forgiven them. God had forgiven them. But of course, Satan hadn't. He wasn't ever going to. He doesn't even know how to forgive anything. Satan played upon their fears. Why? Because he wanted to disrupt this family. Because this is the family of God. This is the family through whom Messiah would come. And anything he could do to disrupt this family and to take their eyes off God, he would do it. And you know, he's going to be reasonably successful. Because as you look at the leap, as, as we'll make that leap sometime uh, a little bit later on, uh, probably the first part of summer, we'll make that leap into the day of Moses. And, and in the day of Moses, many Israelites had apparently largely forgotten their heritage and had forgotten their God. And, and whatever their faith was in their God, it was pretty minimal. And God had to use Moses to, to bring them to this place of trusting in God again so that they could be God's channel through whom he would send Messiah. And so that brings us to, again, reemphasizing the importance that we not only be people who forgive, but we must be people who accept forgiveness. And sometimes it's harder to accept forgiveness than it is to forgive. Because the accuser of the brethren is constantly accusing us. And saying, it, yeah, but how can God forgive you? Your wife, your husband, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, they can't forgive you because you were just too bad. 
You know, you're, you're just a bad person. Guilt feelings were revived for evil deeds confessed and forgiven. That's Satan's way of snatching away our peace. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. As I've emphasized before, one of the most wonderful words in the whole Old Testament is shalom, which means peace, well-being, the, 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 the covering of God upon you. And if Satan can take that peace away, that's what he loves to do. Because God's people with no peace are people who will not accomplish anything for God's kingdom. Because they're living in fear. They're living in a sense that they can make no contribution. Maybe even doubting the goodness of God himself. If Satan can make us ineffective Christians, to him that's, that's his ultimate goal. If you're going to just turn your back on Satan and believe in God, then what he'll do is, is try to make you ineffective as a Christian. It's what he wants to do. And if we're discouraged, and if we feel like that we're, we're the slime of the earth, and that God and others couldn't possibly forgive us, and if anybody really knew how bad we were, they'd never love us again. If he can make us feel that way, then, then he's got us where he wants us, because with that kind of a sense, what can you do for God's kingdom? You know, how, how can God work through you? Well, God can do strange things, it seems, uh, no matter what. But nevertheless, people who walk in God's peace are much more effective as God's implements of blessing in this world. Instead of helping others as we're supposed to, if we're walking around with a guilty conscience and feeling that we're the scuzzballs of the earth, then we become dependent upon others to be constantly you know, lifting us up and telling us, oh, you're not really so bad after all, rather than our ministering to others. Now, we have to be in some kind of a group all the time where, where, where we're being buoyed up by others rather than finally getting over that and getting on with life and becoming God's agent of blessing to others. It's very important that we continually confess our sin because it's very doubtful that any of us lives a single day without sin entering our lives. And, and, and that's why, you know, Jesus told Peter, well, you know, you're clean, but not your feet. You know, not all of you. So, you know, get that momentary sin cleansed. Our sin and failure must be confessed continuously to God and to any persons that we happen to hurt along the way because it's only then that we can begin to remember God's promises. Because God has said, and, and one of the most wonderful promises of all Scripture is in Romans 8.1 where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Once we have been born again, God forgives our sins, past, present, and future. But the dirt of that sin, we must confess for the sake of our own communication with God. Not because if I happen to do a, a sin today and, and die tonight, I'm going to go to hell. I won't, because God has already forgiven that sin. But that sin blocks my communication with God, and I feel out of fellowship. 
It doesn't stop me from being a Christian. It just keeps me from having that sense of camaraderie with my God. And, and so that's why we must confess. And of course, it may be too that we have offended someone and, and we're damaging their peace. And so we need to confess and get that straight. And then there's another passage in Colossians where we read this. And, you were, and when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Colossians 2.13 <coughs> Having forgiven us all our transgressions, not just some, not just the one we happen to confess at the moment, but all. I mean, we have to remember God is almighty, all-knowing. He knew who you would be down the line before he ever brought you. And he doesn't say, oh, no, I saved that person. Look what a jerk he's turned out to be. <laughs> I mean, that's making God into some kind of a little, you know, worldly God who doesn't know today from tomorrow. I mean, God knew you intimately before he ever even created planet Earth. I mean, that's hard for us to understand. I mean, probably on planet Earth, there have been born 100 billion individuals since creation day. You think, oh, how could God possibly intimately know all those people? Because he's omniscient. He knows everything. And we think, well, if, he's, if he knows them, but he sure couldn't love us all because once you spread that much love amongst 100 billion people, there's not much left for me. <laughs> but, but God has the capacity of loving you and loving me as if we were the only person on planet Earth in spite of the hundred billion that have lived or been born throughout all time. There is no condemnation, and he has forgiven all of our sin. That's the sin you and I will commit tomorrow, ten years from today, if God tarries, or however long we might live. It's, it's like we were listening to um, Lutzer. He was talking about a fella who was a great Christian leader. He didn't mention his name, but he became very despondent and committed suicide. And there was a debate going on into which uh, Luther became involved, in which they were saying, but, you know, if he committed suicide, he might had to go to hell because Scripture says murderers don't go to heaven. And he said, well, was the person, he said he didn't personally know the individual, so he says, was the person truly born again? Did he manifest the reality of God's presence? Oh, yes, he was a wonderful Christian leader. He helped so many people. And Luther said, well, what's the question? He's in heaven. He said, just because he happens to die with an unconfessed sin doesn't put him in hell because God has forgiven us all of our sins at the moment of our new birth. Because how many of us, on, on the moment we die, will have confessed everything? I mean, how do you know? You, you may be driving down the freeway and somebody cuts you off and you, you dirty stinking, and you crash into a pole and kill yourself. So you go to hell? I don't think so. That, that's not our God. That's, that's not Jesus. And that's not what the Scripture teaches. Humans want to think that because we always want to think somehow we earn our salvation, but we don't. God has given to it to us as a gift. So the brothers sent a message to Joseph, possibly by Benjamin. <laughs> Good choice. Send his real brother. And requesting his forgiveness. And it's interesting, they, they make this statement in verse 17 there, where they say, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers. No, back up in verse 16. 
They sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying... Well, there's no record of that Jacob saying that. That doesn't mean he didn't, but there's no record of it. It could be they just invented this to, to cover their backsides, you know. Your dad said, whether dad said or not, they sent this message. And it's very possible Jacob did. It's, it could be, he said, they, they were maybe already beginning to fear a little. And, and he says, well, look, just in case, just tell him, tell him that I asked him on my deathbed to forgive you. And that's very possible. He could very well have done that, even though there's no record of it. And, and, and the reason he might have done that, first of all, would be that he wanted to maintain harmony and unity in the family. Because they were living in a foreign land, and there's nothing worse in being in a foreign land than being divided. That's why it is so bad for the church to be divided. Because we're living in an alien land. <laughs> this world is not our home. And, and if the church is divided, we, we create uh, opportunity for the enemy. And so the church itself needs to be united. So we present one front to this alien world in which we live. And so it would be for the family. And then secondly, <laughs> Jacob knew his sons. And, and he knew they had a tendency to become arrogant. Of course, none of us have ever had that problem. But this was a problem that, that they had. And he knew that if they were humbly begging their brother for forgiveness, it would be real hard to be arrogant. It's hard to be arrogant on your knees pleading with somebody to forgive you, you know, if you're being honest about the request. Well, the genuineness of Joseph's forgiveness and of his love for his brothers is seen in his reaction. And his reaction is so parallel to Jesus' reaction that's recorded in John 11.35 where it says, Jesus wept. And here it says, he wept. He wept when he heard the message of his brothers. He wept, not because he felt so great about himself because they're, they're squirming before him again, but that they didn't believe that he'd already forgiven them. All that he had done to show that he had forgiven them, he, he just wept in compassion for his brothers. The use of the word they at the end of verse 17 may mean that, Joseph, that, that Benjamin didn't go alone. Maybe several of the brothers went uh, before the others then came along to make this presentation. Well, I think we'll, we'll stop here and... Next week, we'll pick up with this event because there's some really important truths that we need to glean from Joseph's reaction here and from the statements that we read where he said, Am I in God's place? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that is such a key to our own lives.